and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. I'm back from Australia. Very, very cold, a little bit sick. Uh, but you can follow me at hkizvani on Twitter until it collapses, in which case you can follow me at hkizvani on Instagram. Um, I'm Phoebe. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter until it collapses at PRHROY. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Phoebe underscore Rosa underscore Holly. Yes, I know I have to. I have to make everything the same. You don't need to tell me that. This is not new information to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, you're, you're not like asking for post poster consultants. You already have plenty of those. Yeah. Uh, if anything, I have too many of those. I have too many of those. That's right. Um, before we introduce our guests, I'm very excited to introduce our guests. Uh, this is a free episode, so thank you for tuning in. If you uh, want bonus content, uh, or if you just want to support the show and support what we do, uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast. There's lots of cool interviews, shows, movie reviews. Uh, this week, we have a really special guest uh, joining us. I'm really excited, partly because like we haven't visited the subject for a really, really long time, quite deliberately until we've like, it is very much a case of like, we don't like certain things we will just not get to unless we absolutely have to. And this is definitely one where we absolutely had to do it. And we got the best person to basically clue us in as to like what has been going on the whole time. Uh, we are joined by Jacob Silverman. He's a journalist and co-author of the upcoming book, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud with uh, Ben McKenzie. Uh, Jacob, how's it going? Uh, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. I very much appreciate all the work that you've done following all the sort of like crypto stuff because it really, I can imagine Matt probably has taken quite a toll. Uh, have you had like any weird <laughs> crypto, have you ever had like any weird crypto related dreams like in the years that you've been covering this? That's funny. Uh, I, I did have a dream uh, about Peter Thiel the other night. So, <laughs> so I'm having tech dreams, I guess, but uh, nothing, <laughs> thankfully nothing more vivid than that. He just appeared in one of my dreams for some reason. Okay. Um, but uh, it, it's a weird world. I'm glad to sometimes escape it in the safety of my unconscious. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, for the next hour and 15 minutes, uh, you will not be escaping it. You will very much be like <laughs> very yeah. in-depth into it. Because as we mentioned, like we haven't really covered crypto. I think we did an episode last year about it and it was much more to do with, I think it, it was spurred by like the number of DMs that, I don't know, Phoebe, if you were getting it, but I was certainly getting a lot of DMs from like these very, these kind of like random accounts that were talking about like airdrops and like coins and basically like, during the sort of like the hype of the crypto boom. And then I also had like some quite sincere people trying to kind of get me involved in crypto. And when I said no, not because I really had like an ideological opposition to it at that point, but it was more like money is complicated to me and this feels much more complicated than like normal banking is they uh they kind of uh replied to me with the same kind of version in, in nicer ways of basically saying well have fun staying poor yep. um which uh, I, I i think they're still doing i'd love to find out if they've like changed or they've got a different mantra um but i think after that when we sort of realized that like beyond the kind of you know weird uh, pseudo optimism of these crypto people and like just kind of willful ignorance. There wasn't really that much to say. We kind of didn't talk about it very much. I mean, all of a sudden, uh, across my feeds, as I was like, I think this was kind of happening just this just before I was going to Australia or around about that time. But everyone was talking about FTX and the collapse of FTX. And crucially, they were all sending me this thread that I'm going to read out. So Jacob, um, as your first as the first timer on here, we usually talk about like a post or a tweet that you know. It's usually like a warm up, just kind of something that's kind of fun. But in this instance, we just have this extremely long thread. I'm just going to check the number of posts that it currently has. 
are 28, 31. No, it could be actually be more than 31 posts from Sam Bankman Freed. Uh, the first like 10 of it is just single letters. What happened? And then he kind of talks about like all of the, the FTX collapse as people are kind of getting mad at him. And I look, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know what's, what's kind of going on. I don't know if I need to be smart enough to figure out what's going on. <laughs> you don't. I wonder <laughs> we'll like get into that. For, for, for people like me and also just for listeners who also haven't like been keeping up the tabs with like the ins and outs of crypto, what is this thread actually saying? And like, how did we get to this point where Sam Bankman Fried is like somewhat presumably somewhere in the Bahamas trying to like get people to not be mad at him? <laughs> yeah, there are some photos that came out. I, I wasn't sure about the sourcing, but of him and his parents in the Bahamas in the last couple of days. <laughs> uh, his, his parents have kind of been roped into this. But um, yeah, sort of quick background. You know, the crypto industry uh, has been in trouble this year, uh, really in decline all year in terms of asset prices. But, you know, you've seen some uh, what's called crypto winter kind of settling in basically ever since the beginning of the late spring, beginning of the summer. Um, that's sort of been a weird thing because some some people seem to even in the industry act like this all just started with FTX a couple of weeks ago, but you know a number of companies started failing over the summer uh, because of fraud and other reasons and mm. fraud leading to bankruptcy. <laughs> but really, this all came to a, a head very dramatically with FTX uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago. And Sam has been trying Sam Bankman Fried, who runs FTX and a bunch of related companies, actually over 130 related mm -hmm. companies, but. Um, he's been trying to sort of act like it was just all a bunch of mistakes and mm. they played the market badly and they got kind of uh, in over their heads and, you know, mistakes compound on each other. Uh, I'm glad to, you know, go into any detail about what actually happened with FTX and what Sam is saying. But yeah. basically, Sam is saying that, like, look, we took some big risks. We played the market badly. We moved some money around. There were some mistakes made, but really not admitting to what seems to be a great mm. deal of fraud. Hmm. We do have like, so in the, in like sort of the main part, I think we'll sort of go into like what FTX was and like sure. why this is so significant. Um, this is like a very strange way of like when you're sort of caught, when you're sort of like uh, involved in what seems to be like an international, like quite a big international incidence of fraud. This is like a very weird way of trying to like mitigate or like trying to stop people getting really mad at you. And I was just wondering yeah. whether you like what what's the sort of reasoning behind him kind of just doing a big Twitter thread about it sure. uh, rather than like, say, issuing out like a company statement or not saying anything at all? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of people do stay silent. Um, right now, there's a company called uh, DCG that's big in crypto that's sort of on the brink, people think, and its CEO hasn't posted in weeks. Um, so you do see that kind of thing. I mean, Twitter and as it's called crypto Twitter is where a lot of stuff happens in the industry, a lot of shit posting, a lot of actual deals are done. Mm. Um, and a lot of fraud happens just in the open. So it's not unusual that someone like Sam would would post this seemingly earnest thread. Um, you know, he's tried to act like he's an ethical uh, person for this whole time. You know, we can talk about effective altruism later, but part of his whole spiel has been like, hey, I'm an ethical, thoughtful guy who's in, engaging with the public. Of course, that's all falling apart. The thread was pretty weird, especially because he started with, yeah, as you mentioned, he spelled out he spelled out what, and then he did happened with one letter per tweet, and it seemed kind of obnoxious as you know the whole thing was crumbling and regular people were struggling to get their money back or are simply not allowed to get their money back. Right. Um, he told the New York Times he was just kind of switching things up. It almost seemed like a trolling act. I, I hesitate to sort of psychologize Sam. We can certainly talk <laughs> about like the kind of image he presents and the kind of 
uh, kind of image he puts up, but I don't really know why he was doing it. I mean, I'd say probably for the same reasons he got into this mess, which is he hasn't really been Mm -hmm. thinking things through and maybe he doesn't really understand the scope of the problems that he's facing. I I really, I I don't know. Again, that maybe gets down to like, what is this guy thinking? But um, there is a certain amount of impunity with which crypto people act and post with, and they seem to think that they can get away with almost anything or you know, they're kind of in their own world. And I think that's something of what you see I think in this that, I think that's a possibility. Mm. Like, again, like, I, I'm very unkeen to psychologize him. I don't know him at all, obviously. Um, I mean, apart from, you know, apart from those DMs that we had that, you know, we don't need to talk about. Uh, no one needs, no one needs <laughs> to hear about that, you know. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I wonder whether it's because, at least in part, he's always, like, all the way through from, like, from, from what I've seen and from what I've seen, the like the utter credulity the broader tech media has been treating him with, and the business media and the finance media as well. I mean, you've been you've been pretty much a kind of lone voice, um, sort of like kind of in this like kind of desert, just being like, like, come on, like this is a scam. This is a scam. This is multi level marketing. This is the kind of shit that they sell to like housewives on Facebook. Like, what the. F- fuck what you put you call you call it an investment scheme and suddenly oh this is like serious man stuff like come on guys come on um but he was treat he was treated um he was treated like he was going to be the next uh the next uh coming of like sort of jp morgan and kind of what's sort of warren buffett like it's kind of this whole mm-hmm. idea that he was going to be somehow single-handedly responsible for bringing the like the the real kind of dinosaur infrastructures of um of of how banking and how investment works kind of into like like it like dragging it into the future and everything that he mm-hmm. said was treated with this like extraordinary credulity this kind of pt barnum effect and i wonder if part of this is that he's very much always marketed himself as less of a tech guy less of a finance guy and very much as an influencer it's a similar language and so when it comes to when it comes to the big collapse and the big disaster he's only able to engage with it like an influencer who has disappointed their audience and who understands that they have potentially damaged the parasocial relationships that they rely on and so they have to come up with this completely unconvincing explanation yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think there are a couple of things going on here, too, in addition to that. Sam was very much, as, as you were getting at, sort of the public face of crypto in the U.S., and he was quite openly lobbying uh, public officials, donating a lot of money, going to Capitol Hill all the time. In a way, I mean, really, he was manipulating the political mm. system and lobbying very, but and quite openly, but people sort of accepted that in a way. I mean, <laughs> I think crypto critics didn't like it and people who were worried about money in politics, but... You know, even when he was sort of this political actor, mm. it was sort of as an influencer, as the public face of the stuff, the guy who would sit in front of a microphone or give interviews all the time, go go testify in Capitol Hill, go meet people in private. Um, so he, you know, he's a bit of an awkward guy, but he's not a shy person. And so he's always been used to kind of making himself available to the public. And yeah, he kind of treated it like something he could just say, I'm sorry, I, I, I screwed up and that might make it better. I think there are a couple of things in terms of his image as a public person and, and influencer type that maybe he doesn't realize. Or One is that a lot of people in crypto didn't like him before, but a lot of people mm. were afraid of him or they just worked with him quietly, which I mean, everyone in crypto works with everybody. So there's a real sort of there's a weird thing going on right now where they're trying to act like Sam is public enemy number one. He's maybe the lone bad guy. 
when, uh, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there were all these failures, some of them quite fraudulent over the summer. Sam is certainly far from the lone bad guy, but he's kind of the most prominent villain to emerge mm-hmm. so far. And mm-hmm. certainly the most prominent person who you can kind of safely call a villain with or a criminal, perhaps, without worrying about getting <laughs> sued yet. Um, I mean, and, at, at uh, the moment, what's he going to sue you he, with? He doesn't say... Oh, that's a good question, too. Um, you never know. But um, uh, so there's a lot of missing money. I don't know where he's keeping it, if anywhere. But um, I think he doesn't realize necessarily how quickly public opinion changed. Uh, and again, some like I think Sam it probably committed crimes and certainly deserves a lot of the opprobrium directed at him. Uh, my sort of challenge, I think, is that I've been trying to say, like, look, this is a fundamentally flawed industry. You know, I haven't written a lot about FTX, actually, because uh, I thought there were, you know, the whole industry, I think, has a lot of systemic issues. It is basically an MLM and filled with fraud and bad actors and bad incentives and is exploitative and has predatory economics, things like that. So, for example, um, my own end, I, I have people coming to me. Why didn't you warn us about FTX or you've talked to Sam, which I have just, uh, you know, just a couple times briefly. But um you know, it, Sam was, I, I didn't get to it yet. I mean, we're, we were writing about it in our book, but I, I've also been the type to try to say like, hey, this stuff exists all over the industry. If it's not one person, it's someone else. You can't really trust any of these companies or any of these actors, especially because they're definitely criminal actors in this industry and everything's so intertwined. So mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of how I see it. And then I certainly see Sam as this guy who who is a villain, but, you know, he's been so quickly elevated to kind of the, the Enron or Elizabeth Holmes uh, class of, of people, which is fine and does something sort of in terms of the public imagination, how people see this stuff and the movies that are going to be made very quickly about all this. Yeah. But to me, it's almost overlooking the fact mm-hmm. that it's not just one bad guy. It's a lot of bad guys, some of whom we know about and some of whom we don't really know about yet. Yeah. I was also going to say that like one of the obviously... It feels like because there's so much like FTX stuff that has like sort of come out, even in like we had scheduled this uh, recording uh, for a couple of days ago. And in the course of those coming days, like there has been so much stuff that has like has come out about like FTX, which it almost feels like it kind of is obscuring what you've mentioned, which is that what we should really be paying attention to is the fact that like there are real systemic problems and like it sort of goes well beyond FTX. I, I did want to read some of them out, though, because they are quite funny. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is from uh, our friend like Ed, Zit- uh, Ed Zitron, yeah, um, yeah. in which, well, you know, he's been he's been like tweeting a lot of like quite interesting stuff about FTX. But one of the things that caught our uh, our eye, uh, because it also involves uh, part of the 10K post law, is uh, the Inspector Gadget connection. Oh yeah, um, this is great. So uh, yeah. Uh, you might have to like give us some more context into this, but the screenshot reads, Farmington has more than one crypto co- connection. FBH bought the bank in 2020. The chairman of FBH is John is Jean Ch- Chalopin, uh, who, along with being the co-creator of the cartoon cop Inspector Gadget in the 1980s, is the chairman of Deltec Bank, which, like FTX, is based in the Bahamas. Deltec's best-known client is Tether, a crypto company with $65 billion in assets, offering stablecoin that is pegged to the dollar. Um... There, there are some words of that that are like, <laughs> that are in the Bible, but um, I can sort that out if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, can you like pack like ha- pack that out for us? Because all I really now now the only thing in my head is the Inspector Gadget theme song. <laughs> so there, there are endless bizarre characters in crypto. In some ways, Sam is kind of boring because um, mm-hmm. he's just sort of 
a, a finance math guy uh, with this strange philosophical underpinning justifying everything. But like, there are some really colorful figures, of course, in crypto, which kind of makes it fun to report on. But and one of them is the man who, whose name you pronounce a lot better than I would, uh, Jean Jalopin, who. So this guy created Inspector Gadget, the beloved children's cartoon that I watched as a kid here in the U.S. I don't know if it made it over to the U.K., but um, hmm. and uh, he he owns a bank in the Caribbean. I mean, it, the sort of main things to know, like in this industry, your instincts are probably often correct. Like if something seems scammy or suspicious. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stuff happens offshore. FTX was mostly run out of the Caribbean. A lot of uh, important crypto companies are run out of the Caribbean, Seychelles, Malta, Hong Kong, these overseas juris- jurisdictions. So for many years, uh, people have thought that the the main scam in crypto, really, or the main fraudulent player was Tether. Tether is a very important company. And and I, honestly, like my co-writer Ben and I have been waiting, uh, lots of people have been waiting for Tether to go down for years. Uh, I'm actually somewhat of a newer entrant towards to crypto. You know, I've been only waiting for maybe <laughs> a year and a half or two. Mm-hmm. But um you know, there are other critics and skeptics who have been talking about Tether for a long time. It, yeah, it does these stable coins. It issues stable coins called Tethers, which are worth a dollar. They're kind of like the casino chips used mm-hmm. at the crypto casino. So yeah. uh, because crypto is all about banking. So um, whether so, the thing with Tether is that if you're buying crypto uh, at exchanges, it's easier to sort of buy Tethers first usually and then buy other crypto with your Tethers because then you don't have to connect it to your normal bank account necessarily or keep bringing in dollars or other things like that. Uh, it kind of lets you stay within the crypto ecosystem. You might also avoid a taxable event in the US, like if right. you sell your crypto. So you don't necessarily have to move out of crypto. The other reason is um, a lot of these crypto companies have either tenuous or no relationships with mainstream banks. So that's mm-hmm. where we come to Jean Jalapin. Uh, uh excuse me. Um, he owns this bank called Deltec in the Caribbean. That is Tether's main bank. But w- what we learned the other day is that um, there's this bank in the U.S., this tiny bank, which has been renamed Moonstone, I think. It was called Farmington. It's owned by the company you, you mentioned, FHB or FBH. Yeah. Um, and so that was a big surprise, which basically um, Sam's company, F- one, one division of FTX and uh, Jean Jalapin, uh co-own this tiny U.S. bank. Uh, and the reason why that's important is anytime one of these offshore crypto companies can get a foot, a legitimate foothold in the U.S. banking system, mm-hmm. that's potentially very useful for them. It means they can move dollars around. It might mean they can move dollars around without much notice from authorities, especially if they own the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, U.S. banking is despite having many problems, uh, you know, I always have to do my my sort of preamble where I say, like, look, mainstream finance mm-hmm. sucks, Wall Street sucks, you know, I'm a leftist, I hate all these things. Crypto is actually worse. Um, that's sort of my very simple thing. <laughs> uh, you know, crypto is sometimes good in, in its diagnoses of existing problems, like why mm-hmm. TradFi, as they call it, is bad, but I think its solutions are worse. But anyway, anytime you can get a foothold in the mainstream banking system, it's it's useful for crypto. The other kind of important banking relationship is a little-known bank called Silvergate. It's based out of Washington State here in the U.S. It does banking services for a lot of crypto companies, including FTX. But the the other bank you just mentioned it was not known that that FTX and Tether basically ha- own this bank. And the reason why that's a big deal is, for mm-hmm. one thing, everyone thinks Tether's a scam. Um, speaking of lawsuits, you know, I joked with with actually my co-writer Ben the other day. Many people have, in writing have called Tether a scam. They've never sued anybody <laughs> for that. I think that kind of says something. Um, 
about them, considering they have huge resources. Maybe they just don't care because they're based overseas. But um, FTX was basically Tether's biggest customer. They, uh, at least on paper, gave Tether more than $30 billion and received more than $30 billion worth of Tethers to trade, to use in the crypto casino. Um, So, and that's over a period of a few years. But imagine, you know, one company that we know is fraudulent, FTX, working and and being the biggest customer of a company that many Mm -hmm. people suspect is fraudulent, Tether. Mm -hmm. And then these two guys happen to own a bank together in the U.S. Like that is highly strange and suspicious. Also very convenient for both of them. Sam uh, in public and even in private, frankly, has always tried to act like Tether is kind of messy. Is kind of like the the but but on the up and up. Like they've been uh, they've they've had problems. They don't run their business very well. They've been in and out of the banking system like a lot of crypto companies. But, you know, it's all legal. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's. It's fair to say it's not. I mean, even we know Tether's being investigated for criminal bank fraud under by the Department of Justice. Tether has been fined by multiple U.S. government agencies for basically lying about its bank, its bank um, reserves, Mm -hmm. the the reserves backing those tethers. And there's a lot of other stuff you can point to that just not not necessarily it hasn't really risen to the level of, you know, criminal action. But it could if the U.S. government were motivated enough. So basically you have the kind of the previously understood sketchiest actor in crypto, which is Tether, and then the new sketchiest actor, which is FTX, working very closely together and owning a bank together. And that's one of many things that has been really sh- uh, kind of surprising about all this, um, or maybe just uh, illuminating, but n- not necessarily surprising mm-hmm. if you just are yeah. ready for anything. Um, the, the other thing is, I mean, you can read about Tether and the bank it owns. I, I recommend uh, Zeke Fox, F-A-U-X, uh, re- Bloomberg reporter who does a lot of good reporting. He's writing a book about sort of uh, crypto financing. And he wrote a big story about Tether for Bloomberg in the last year and and wrote about the and visited the banker, uh, Shalapen, in the Caribbean. And he's, of course, uh, this eccentric guy who was a cartoon mogul and now runs a bank uh, it, that only a few people work at. And then just caters towards these offshore crypto companies. So that's kind of the the relationship or what's going on. And really, this is, uh, on the one hand, important and a little bit surprising, but eminently normal or just sort of uh, in, in the realm of normal business for crypto. I mean, nothing in crypto is ever really like other industries, not, not even really like mainstream finance, uh, which has a lot of bad things going on. But Crypto is always sort of one more step ahead in terms of operating outside the law or just being so I have a, So I have a question yeah. and it's it's less about FTX and less about this whole situation and more about more about kind of crypto generally, just like while we've, while we've got you. And it's that one of the things that I occasionally see coming up as an argument is, uh, is the idea that, uh, that crypto does have a good and uh, potentially moral use case in jurisdictions that are for example targeted by OFAC so like if uh, people in Cuba want to uh, want to be making kind of financial contact with people in the US or you know th- th- this is the example and it's, it's, it's really interesting actually I want to come back to OFAC because uh, our good friend um, Sam Bankman-Fried is um, is obsessed with OFAC and it's for literally the op and why he hates them is for so literally the opposite reason for why I hate them. And so I think that's quite fascinating in the, in the way that we kind of sit at absolute <laughs> opposite ends of the ideological spectrum there. 
And so I've so I've seen that kind of put forward as um, as a kind of potential use case, and also for uh, for places in the global south where there isn't developed uh, banking structure, and and that sort of part of the part of the thing which is like interfering with their development in a kind of in a sort of more global sense. And so I've been doing a bit more kind of looking into whether or not that's true. And there's nothing that I can I, I can just about see the point of um of a kind of imaginary kind of symbol i mean obviously you could make the argument that all money is imaginary and all investments are imaginary and it's all symbology and it all just goes back to the gold standard which was also imaginary but we do have to pretend there is some kind of material basis in what we're talking about otherwise it makes it impossible to talk about the immaterial bases um but everything that I everything that I read about um, about the kind of the use case of crypto in the global south just to me looked just like standard post colonial exploitation of people, exploitation of resources, and exploitation of uh, sort of lack of sort of lack of overseas regulation and exploitation of um, of the assumptions held by the American empire that they can do literally whatever they want all around the world, including fucking around with their, with their finance infrastructure. And I'm just interested if there, if there's something that I'm missing or whether there is, or whether, or whether that is just a kind of way of just of kind of dismissing reasonable criticism. I think you're getting into a very interesting area and it's a complicated one too, because there are aspects of that argument you're laying out that I'm sympathetic to. Like, first of all, yeah, I'm generally anti-sanctions. I mean, certainly the U.S. has used them basically as a tool of war. We uh, we killed a lot of Iraqis mm-hmm. in the 90s via sanctions. Iran is really suffering in other places. Um, um, so it gets complicated when you start talking about, well, first, let's just step back for a moment. One of the main I- sort of ideological underpinnings of crypto, which you'll find in to varying degrees of kind of intensity or, or political motivation is that mm. people should be able to transact freely. They want censorship mm-hmm. resistant money, as they call it. And this has some appeal in in places that are under sanctions or that have limited access to the banking system or authoritarian countries mm-hmm. where you worry about the government and the government mm-hmm. limiting people's ability to hold money, to buy what they want or to be surveilled upon. Certainly um, pretty much any authoritarian country, even in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or a recent example is when when Justin Trudeau limited the ability of that during the truckers mm-hmm. protest, um, limited the ability of some of them to access Bitcoin. That was a huge moment, actually, for the crypto industry. They went crazy. They thought they thought Trudeau had become a tyrant and uh, and people were painting him as a dictator. Um, so it, it's really this idea about especially on the, the right wing that that the right wing um, libertarian even sovereign citizen underpinnings for parts of crypto, that kind of thing is a, is a huge deal to them. They think they should be able to transact any amount of money, any time with any party. Now, I think just real quick, you know, with money, it is somewhat imaginary. And we do talk about that in our forthcoming book. But, you know, you look at sort of fiat currency, it's supported by the kind of the whole structure of, of your society, mm-hmm. whether it's the dollar, the United States, obviously, that's underpinned by American empire. But it's also like, you know, I sometimes when I'm talking to people, I just sort of wave around me like it's all this <laughs> stuff. You know, it's like the whole society yeah. uh, helps uphold the dollar, not just kind of um, mass delusion among 330 million people. But you always get people from crypto saying, well, the dollar is the original Ponzi scheme or the Fed just prints money and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say those things. But again, like the whole society has agreed and has laws and customs and 
and traditions and institutions that you know help uphold mm-hmm. the dollar. Now, in terms of um, first principles, I do think that money is kind of the province of the state and it should be uh, subject to some kind of political mm-hmm. governance. The problem, of course, is that most political governance of money is not good, <laughs> <laughs> to put it simply. You know, in the U.S., uh, uh, the Fed and kind of the, in, the institutions that influence the Fed and monetary policy, I wouldn't say is very democratic. Mm-hmm. But given the choice between corporate money printed by private corporations, mostly overseas, and by people you don't even know who they are, I would choose, you know, fiat currency and, and the Fed yeah. over that. Now, in terms of, um, you know, some of the most sympathetic arguments I find for crypto are talking about getting around sanctions for countries that are unfairly targeted for, you know, innocent people in countries like that, or people in, you know, what's broadly referred to as the global south, who don't have access to, to certain financial resources, or say there's crazy inflation going on in Turkey or Lebanon or Argentina right now. Um, there is a certain demand there for, for crypto. Um there, there are some issues with that, I think. One is that you're basically inviting people when by painting crypto as this alternative. It may be sometimes the, the, the lesser of two evils, kind of, or the, the least mm-hmm. bad option for some folks. I mean, certainly in places like Afghanistan, where there's basically no financial infrastructure, where the U.S. has effectively stolen all the country's money, um, and, uh, and the Taliban is, is really, you know, has everyone under their boot, you can understand why people might want to use crypto to get some money out of the country. What you have in other places, I'd say, is kind of more of a privileged class, potentially being able to use crypto to say like, um, you do have entrepreneurs and regular people in places like Lebanon using Tether or other crypto, especially because Tether is pegged to the Mm -hmm. dollar and usually is is supposed to stay worth a dollar. They kind of use it as a dollar substitute. I've talked to people who uh, at tech companies who pay developers in Ukraine with Tether. The, um, especially there, there have been interruptions to kind of traditional banking. So sometimes you do see crypto as a potential stopgap measure. On the other hand, I think it, it can, as I sort of referenced, cater towards a privileged class of people who know how to navigate that stuff, you know, um, poor people or old people or non-tech literate people in, some, in other countries, much less in the U.S., are not going to be able to use crypto as effectively, I think, as sort of a monetary workaround. And I think that that's significant. Even when I went to, I, actually, I'll talk about El Salvador in a second. But, um, um, but you know, you got to ask kind of at what cost, because you're also empowering, frankly, people in crypto who are not very responsible actors who don't necessarily who will say they care about the financial liberation of people in the in the global south or in places with uh, economic crises or flight or inflation going on, but. I don't believe them, uh, yeah. to be honest. Like, I, I think some people have genuine human rights concerns and, and see crypto as a solution to that. But in practice, I just I, I don't think that it is very genuine or effective a means of kind of liberating people, even economically. Um, and I think they're probably a more effective means to advocate for. Certainly, the the removal of the sanctions regime as a kind of warfare by other means, I think, would be a lot yeah. more effective. But uh, crypto as a workaround, you're basically inviting people into this somewhat lawless financial system that is rigged by a small number of, of mm-hmm. insiders. I mean, pretty much all the exchanges like FTX are either untrustworthy or the marketplaces are legitimately rigged. I mean, like you have a lot of what's called wash trading, which is just fake trading between accounts that parties control. There have been studies on this that there's a lot of wash trading, like 80 to 90 percent on some of these 
marketplaces, which is basically just fake trading. And the reason why they do that is because it gives the illusion of volume. It makes prices go up more. It makes your exchange seem like a busy place where people are, are trading a lot and want to be. This happens a lot in the NFT mm-hmm. market too. So I could sell an NFT back and forth between accounts that I own. Suddenly an NFT that was originally worth like one Ether or Ethereum, one, uh, one Ether is now worth like 10 or 100 um, because I, I sold it back and forth to accounts I control for uh, growing prices uh, each time. So, you know, it's kind of like saying, hey, you know, you're, you're a middle class guy in Beirut. The economy is a mess. Why don't you go to this illegal money lender down the street and he'll help you out. Like, I mean, those kinds of people exist in every country. Um, it may be a temporary or sort of stopgap solution for some people, but it's not a kind of long-term solution I think you can really bank on. <laughs> hey. Sorry for the bad pun. Or, and I think also it sometimes underrates kind of local capacity yeah. uh, and local financial capacity in some countries. Like, for example, you know, East Africa, especially Kenya, has had M-Pesa for over a decade, and it's a very efficient and, and it's improved, and it's a very good way for people to send money to each other. It started as a way just to send phone minutes, and those were sort of treated as a unit of value or unit of account. Um, I was in Kenya in 2011, just on on a, a trip, um, and people were using M-Pesa there. So, and you have other um, methods of of transmitting money, or um, you know. Uh, and that, I think, also brings us actually to El Salvador, which is the only country in the world besides the Central African Republic, but it doesn't really count. Uh, no offense to the Central African Republic, but they only have 10 percent um, of their country has Internet access. They've said they are bringing in Bitcoin as an official currency. It's not really happening there yet. Mm. But, you know, look at the only country in the world that's actually adopted Bitcoin as a currency, uh, El Salvador. It has a lot of problems. It certainly can attribute a lot of those to the United States and other powerful outside mm. actors. But... What has happened there since they introduced Bitcoin? And I went there. I'm not saying that a week in, in El Salvador tells you everything, but I did. we did reporting there. We've talked to a lot of people. We continue to talk to a lot of people. Um, Bitcoin is not used very much there. People don't like it. They don't want it. El Salvador is a, a cash-heavy economy. It's 70% cash, actually, most 70% okay. transactions. Mm-hmm. Also, a similar number of people don't have bank accounts, uh, which people would say the solution to that is, is crypto, you know, bank the unbanked. But um, and then remittances are the big thing, right? We're supposed to be able to send money overseas and across borders more easily with crypto uh, or with Bitcoin. And that's supposed to be the big appeal for El Salvador because 25% of El Salvador's economy, their GDP is remittances because a huge uh, proportion of their population lives in the diaspora, mostly in the U.S. actually. There are a couple of million Salvadorans here in the U.S. and they send back a lot of money. And people travel a lot. But, you know, less than 2% of these are the Salvadoran government's own figures. Less than 2% of remittances right now are being sent via Bitcoin. And, for, you know, I've had people say, hey, that's actually a decent number. You know, 2% of, tw- uh, of, mm-hmm. of a quarter of, of the economy is actually a lot of money. But I, I think it's widely seen as a failure. Um, the other thing you're doing, uh, actually, not just in El Salvador, but all over the world, is you're bringing people into a very volatile currency, whether it's crypto or pretty much, I mean, whether it's Bitcoin or pretty much any other crypto. Mm. Um, so, you, uh, you know, if people are able to quickly uh, move from, uh, sorry, I have my cat here. <laughs> uh, you might hear him meowing. Um, if people are very quickly able to move from their, you know, their local currency into crypto, then maybe into dollars with, you know, minimal fees, then maybe they're, they're actually getting into a b- better financial position. But again, there are a lot of, for all the reasons I named earlier, but then also there are these fees and 
And it's just, it's not, it doesn't strike me as sort of sustainable or, or to use the yeah. tech and crypto word as scalable. Um, and, you know, what I think also happens, crypto is, is sort of this, this thing that's introduced in the absence mm-hmm. of trust. And, uh, and, and it certainly doesn't improve trust. It kind of, may, it, may, it weakens trust in institutions and one another, actually quite deliberately. I mean, people in crypto talk about how they want trustless money. They've lost so much faith in mainstream finance. I mean, again, understandably, because a lot of the critiques of Wall Street are valid. But instead of trying to kind of create new institutions or refurbish the existing institutions or bring or create real political reform, they just want to escape the political system entirely because they've totally given up on politics. Mm. Yeah. And so they want to trust code and they want to trust code, which, of course, is written by real people. Even if you think Satoshi is a god, (laughs) you know. Bitcoin, um, can, the price can be manipulated and the people handling Bitcoin are not necessarily reliable actors. So they have this vision where somehow you can escape politics and escape your local economic and material conditions mm. and escape into this world where there's no need for trust because it's just code and code is somehow perfect or infallible. But you know, guess what? There are a lot of flaws in that code. It's written by real people. There are still intermediaries. There's still human intermediaries or corporate intermediaries. And you can't necessarily trust them either. So if you, um, in a way, they're actually they actually are putting all their trust in code and even putting trust in these intermediaries they don't acknowledge, and that just doesn't really work as a way of running a financial system. Um, you know, again, like Wall Street is terrible, but it it is very highly regulated in some ways. Like you actually have people from um, government agencies sitting in certain banks and saying. What is this transaction? Why are you sending $5 million to, to this place? That seems a little weird yeah. or other things like that. And nothing like that really happens in crypto. I mean, arguably that would have helped um, anticipate FTX. Um, now you have some people in crypto saying, oh, we need regulation because it would have helped anticipate yeah. FTX. <laughs> um, but I think you have to look for like, what kind of system are you really proposing? with say yeah. crypto or with mainstream finance and it doesn't have to be one or the other but you know that's the choice being presented to us by crypto itself is they're saying it is one or the other and if you don't like crypto or like like me i mean i hear this every day you're just a shill for the fed and for mainstream finance and i'm saying no we don't just have two choices you know there are yeah. other ways mm-hmm. um and the political system is horrible but it doesn't mean it's beyond redemption or that we should simply abandon it because when you abandon it you're banning it to the the people who run the crypto ecosystem, you know, to a new set. Uh, you're you're not decentralizing power. You're redistributing power. And mm-hmm. crypto people think they are decentralizing power and kind of decentralizing to the point where power mm-hmm. is gone from the system. And I and completely disagree and think you're just de- redistributing it to a new set of powerful actors and gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. And I always li- I always like it when systems are are built back to front like this. So. When something, yeah. when some kind of disaster happens, and then they say, "Oh, oh, that's why you do the thing that we said that we didn't need to do." Oh, right, okay, no, now I've, now I got you, now I got yes, you, which absolutely. I think, which is fun. That's a, a fun that's, way of doing things. It's <laughs> hilarious and kind of, but it's important to note too. Um, Nicholas Weaver, who's a very funny acerbic critic of crypto, he's a he's a computer scientist, so he really gets the tech. Um, he says that that crypto is speed running 500 years of financial history, basically. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things we learn, like as my co-writer Ben McKenzie says, like we learned 100 years ago that in the US, more than 100 years ago that you need, or about 100 years ago actually, that you need securities laws because we yeah. had the Great Depression. Um, you know, and a lot mm-hmm. of crypto likes to act like it's new and it's global and it's borderless. But, you know, by a lot of standards, these tokens are just yeah. securities. 
And they're actually pretty worthless securities because there's no company or revenue stream behind it. You know, uh, Apple stock is connected to a company. Even a penny stock is ostensibly connected to a company that's make that's hopefully making something. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of mistakes that that we learn in, in tradfi, as they call it, uh, ninety or hundred years ago, that are now being replicated in crypto. But because they think that they're different, they have to learn these things on their own. And because, frankly, there's a lot of arrogance in in the industry, they think that they have to learn on it on its own. Real quick, just to wrap up the El Salvador thing, actually. Um, you know, people are still use, to send money. People still use uh, MoneyGram and Western Union and other services like that. And it's very simple. One, they trust it. They're used to it. Those companies have buildings. They have storefronts mm-hmm. in El Salvador. So if you send money to your abuela from Washington, D.C., where there's a huge or New York, where I live, both cities where there are huge Salvadoran populations, you send it to your grandmother in El Salvador in some small town. She can walk into a Western Union speak Spanish to the guy at the counter, get the money in cash. You know, there's a fee. It's but everyone knows, you know, she knows the guy behind the counter. You know, it's a big company. It's all it's all uh, familiar and established and deserving of at least some measure of trust. You know, they don't have to set up a, a wallet that is connected to a bunch of sketchy private companies that are doing business with the Salvadoran government that has technical issues where people have been stolen from and had their yeah. identity stolen. That's the Chivo wallet system in El Salvador, which has been a mess. Um, so, you know, there's this idea that, that crypto is, has introduced peer-to-peer economics. Um, really, there's very little in crypto that happens peer-to-peer. Um, there is a joke, actually, though, in crypto, the one, one thing that you do see peer-to-peer of a lot is peer-to-peer <laughs> scamming um, because people are able to sort of scam each other directly. But inevitably, there are intermediaries. So now, for example, with this huge crash and with FTX going down, Binance, which is already by far the biggest exchange in the world, has presented itself as the savior of crypto. Mm. This is actually a role that Sam Bankman-Fried was playing just a few months ago when he was extending all these emergency lines of credit to other companies. Um, But now Binance is doing that. And Binance claims to have a billion dollars in this new fund to rescue crypto companies in distress that it wants to rescue or they're deserving of rescue. You know, and that of course, you know, some people in crypto are like, "What? wait a second, this is a huge centralized entity coming in now. And that they're completely right because that, again, <laughs> that's not the original vision of crypto, but like, you know, you can do the old, we're social animals or something like that. But like, you know, we're not, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't really like um, pop psychology or sort of like evolutionary psychology, but look like, we live in a society. That's what I always say, sir. We live in a society, you know, with all these people. It. And, uh, you know, there are institutions for a reason and sort of agglomerations sometimes even of capital and power for a reason. It's not, it's not, it doesn't mean it's always run well, yeah. but we've learned why we do these things and why you might want to have institutions that you can trust. Um, mm. a- another sort of basic aspect of all this that I, I point to is like, you know, the idea behind crypto is also like everyone is potentially their own bank and like their own kind of sovereign economic actor. I don't really want to be my own bank. Like, I don't like my bank. Uh, I don't like Bank of America. I would choose another bank maybe if it were easier or more convenient. I probably should be using like a local credit union or something like that, which are frankly a lot more ethical than Bank of America. But one nice thing about putting your money in a bank is that you don't think mm-hmm. about it all the time. Um, and this is another aspect of crypto that I don't really care for, which is that you become your own banks. So you're always worried about security. You're always worried about where your money is. You're, of co- you're also because these markets are 24 seven and very volatile. You're also wondering how much is my yeah. money worth today? Yeah. Um, you know, 
my, I, I'm, a, I'm sorry, there's 8% inflation, which is bad, but my, the dollar is not um, oscillating by 20% in either direction in a day, mm. which is what can happen with any cryptocurrency or can happen with Bitcoin. You yeah. just don't have that. Like the dollar is not going to lose um, 50% of its value in six mm. months. That just doesn't happen. And so that's another reason why you're, you're, you're creating this financial system that is so volatile and asking some of the most impoverished people uh, in the global south and even in the U.S. and other uh, sort of well-to-do countries to, to take part in this as some sort of liberating alternative. I think that's yeah. really deceitful. And it's unfortunate because in the, U- in the U.S. this takes place through a process that we've called affinity fraud. Uh, this is not an original term to me, but it's very relevant in crypto. What you have is basically... You know, um, people people of color or sort of traditionally marginalized populations are actually statistically overrepresented in crypto in the U.S. compared to their population. So you have a lot of Black and Latino Americans who are uh, involved in crypto, and honestly, they've gotten into it because mostly they were rightly told, "Hey, uh, traditional finance has has cut you out, has discriminated against you, has redlined you, ha- won't gi- has won't give." you know, wouldn't give your parents loans mm-hmm. to buy houses in white neighborhoods, things like that. A hundred percent true. Um, you know, even just a few years ago, Wells Fargo was doing horrible predatory tactics towards black communities and, and certainly the subprime yeah. crisis, you know, all kinds of things you can name. But so then you're using what's called a finny fraud, which is you take someone from that, that group that it can be an ethnic group. It can be, uh, um, people of a certain yeah. gender identity or sexual orientation. It doesn't even have to be a marginalized group. You know, it can be old people. It can be whoever. It can be guys in their 20s. Um, but you, you, you take someone from that in-group and say, hey, actually crypto worked for me or this is why crypto is going to work for you guys. And it's most malevolent when you do it towards a group that actually has yeah. been discriminated against. And, you know, a great example of this was, I mean, it, it happened way before him, but uh, Jay Z, with the help of Jack Dorsey, went into Marcy Gardens. The actually, I don't even know if he went in person, but Marcy Gardens is uh, the the housing project not far from me here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. where Jay Z grew up. And they did this program um, where they basically were going to give people a little bit of Bitcoin and do kind of a financial literacy class. And and here's how you learn about crypto through this class. And there, there have been a few articles since, a great one in The Guardian, some other places where people were like, w- people who live there mm. saw through it. They said, we don't want this. You know, a few, <laughs> people were, a few people were interested. And that's the other thing. It's like, you know, a lot of people, including people who you may think of as not financially sophisticated or might be poor or might not have access to a lot of stuff traditionally, doesn't mean they're not savvy to a scam yeah, yeah. or to think or do- doesn't mean that they don't know their own financial mm. needs. Um and can't assess that. So like, for example, in that Guardian article from a few months back, you had a lot of people saying like, the, the guy actually went, the author went to Marcy Gardens and talked to people and they said like, look, that sounds nice, but like, I don't need Bitcoin. I need dollars or I need, you. people should fix the basketball hoop or like it's too cold yeah. in our building or, you know, things like actual material needs that they can solve uh, with, you know, and sometimes needs, material needs for the whole uh, complex, you know, for more than yeah. one person. Um, not just like, you know, I'll get mine by sitting in on this class and get $30 with a Bitcoin and learn something about Bitcoin. So, you know, and that, of course, you know, trying to empower people with financial services is a very sort of neoliberal or kind of just capitalist idea. And, and again, doesn't really think about um, communities mm-hmm. or collective needs or anything like that. So that's the affinity fraud I see taking place a lot. Sure. And it's unfortunate because 
you know, there are people who are actually in need. And look, I mean, there are people, there are black Americans who are in crypto who will say I'm totally wrong because they, they believe in it. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. who am I to necessarily argue with that? But from my perspective and how I see it, this is how you see people who are, you know, someone like Jack Dorsey is very powerful and, and is a billionaire. And the fact that he can just throw down some money and basically try to lure more people into yeah. the pyramid scheme, I, I find you, I find pretty troubling. Mm -hmm. And this is really what's happening all across crypto in one form or another, whether it's, whether it's presented as affinity fraud, whether it's presented as human rights or economic empowerment, or whether it's just presented as the get rich quick scheme that crypto basically started as. Yeah. Um, that's what you see. And, um, and, th and that's why I find troubling because you're really just inviting more people into the scam. Yeah. So you've answered like you've answered like a bunch of questions that like I had throughout the notes. So I'm like, I'm one, sorry, I, no, I no, went ahead and I riffed too much. But no, but I think I think that's great uh, because like it kind of like brings me I, I was going to ask like quite earlier on, like sort of can you kind of give us a bit like just kind of a precedent of like what FTX was and how it kind of got to the point. And I, and I guess like I still have that question just for people yeah. who are completely unfamiliar. But what I was also going to add was like my impression, like reading articles about Sam Bankman Freed beyond all of like the, the, the kind of polycule stuff that seems like how, to be all of like over like page one of Google um, yeah. is really about, um, he was sort of framed not just as like the next Warren Buffett, but also like the guy who was going to save cryptocurrency. And like part of that was yeah. because he kind of identified or at least sort of vocalized some of the problems that you mentioned about cryptocurrency, right? About like how difficult it was to sort of like use it in terms, like, in terms of wallet transactions, in terms of its volatility. So he kind of presented FT or at least my impression of it was that he he presented FTX as kind of being this sort of like professionalized, easy to use service, which would quote unquote empower people to use cryptocurrency um, and also just be able to resolve what they kind of perceived to be like technical problems with crypto. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of this coverage was very much like, oh, it's not like crypto doesn't have anything wrong ideologically. Really what's wrong is that like the technology is a bit janky and like kind of weird and like that's what's causing these problems. Right. Um, and I wondered like whether that like, it was that cell which allowed people to kind of see Sam Bankman freed as, because I guess it kind of feeds into the whole like belief thing as well, right? Like the idea that like these people genuine or like they really want to believe that crypto is the sort of like savior of like the system and can be like the preserve of the system as well. Um, and so they really, really need it to work. And, and then you have this kid who uh, seemingly like just says what people really want him to say. Um, and is really, and really just kind of says for like, oh, all of this was just like a problem to do with like existing technologies and using right. FTX and like using kind of Al Alamada research, which like also was his think tank. Like these two kind of tools can sort of reshape the crypto markets in a way that makes it like more inherently more stable. So I guess like my question yeah. is, was like, was this sort of like, a, do you feel like this was a deliberate tactic used by Sam Bankman Fried? And I guess by extension, like how did FTX sort of gain this amount of trust so seemingly quickly? Because it's kind of bizarre now that like you have this sort of whole, whole like swave of articles, but are like, oh, FTX was kind of always a scam and it was like so yeah. obvious and they had no holdings and no savings. And like, there were like, it wasn't even like a viable business. But if you kind of like look towards like what was written about it last year, like there's a very, very different story being uh, promoted. Right. That, yeah, that, that, that's very good. I, I'll, I'll give a quick sort of summary of Sam and, and the role that he plays. But yeah, simply Sam was kind of the guy who was going to make crypto safe for the public in a lot of ways, um, as you're alluding to, I think. He, I mean, he was very openly lobbying because he thought, um, you know, if there's going to be regulation, so I want to shape it. 
you know, he, he was very open about the fact that he wanted the CFTC, which is the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, to, to regulate crypto instead of the SEC, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Basically, it's because the CFTC is smaller, has less money, and is much more uh, enthralled to crypto and the crypto industry. Mm-hmm. That's the simple reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's sort of like, you know, if there is going to be a regulated crypto, I want to be the guy to shape it. Yeah. Um, so that's what he was doing. He was going to legalize the casino and bring it on shore. Um, there are already there are regulated crypto exchanges in the U.S. like Coinbase, but honestly, you can't do as much on those crypto exchanges as you can on the overseas exchanges. So FTX was there's an FTX US which you can trade some tokens on, but FTX Global as it might be called or the offshore one based in the Caribbean, you can do a lot more. You can uh, it's it was known for futures and derivatives trading where you basically bet against the price of crypto whether it's, it's going to go up and down. You can do a lot of leverage, which basically means you can borrow free money to try to risk more. So if, you, if you're yeah. right, you, you win a lot of money. If you're wrong, you're in big trouble. Your position gets liquidated and you have zero. Um, um, so so that, that overseas business in the Caribbean, that FTX, was supposed to be the really, pro, the really profitable center of Sam's business. The other part was supposed to be Alameda Research. Al, so Alameda Research, actually, the name is a little deceptive. It's Alameda came first. Um, it start, so Sam is 30 years old. He, he went to MIT. Supposedly at MIT, he got into effective altruism, which is basically tells you make a lot of money so you can do good with it. And you're kind of the best arbiter of how to do philanthropy and how to spend your money on good causes. You know, it doesn't say pay more taxes or reform mm. the political system or anything like that. But so he first went to Jane Street, which is a quantitative trading firm on Wall Street, trading, you know, traditional equities and securities. And then the story goes, at least, uh, you know, there's some skepticism about there should be skepticism about everything in the in the Sam Bankman free story. But the story originally goes, um, he he found this arbitrage opportunity where he could buy Bitcoin in the US and sell it on uh, Japanese exchanges, and I believe Korean exchanges uh, mm-hmm. for a higher price, which is possible. I mean, those arbitrage opportunities still mm-hmm. uh, exist occasionally in crypto, not as much anymore. That's a more global market. Um, and that supposedly he made millions that way. And then as he was spinning up, he kind of spun up Alameda Research into basically a trading firm uh, and kind of a hedge fund. And as he was doing that, for some reason, he decided he needed an exchange. So, you know, most people go into the buy and sell crypto, they go on exchanges. They're kind of the casinos and, and where this stuff is done. You know, you can buy crypto through other means. You can buy it through directly from people sometimes or through PayPal or, or Venmo or, or Cash App, which is owned <laughs> by Jack Dorsey. Um, but um, you're a lot more limited sometimes in those platforms. Actually, until recently, you, on PayPal, you could only sell your, your crypto back to PayPal. You couldn't even move it to another service or another wallet, um, which is really limiting. But anyway, so Sam, you know, he spun up this, this FTX exchange overseas. He, was, he had whatever the w- nerdy special sauce <laughs> is that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that gets v- venture capitalists excited um, you know, the Zuckerberg syndrome or whatever it is. I don't know. Like the, the obvious comparison is actually um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Holmes, which I, I, I was the first resistant to, but I'm actually more and more in, in favor of because, you know, he, he convinced just like Elizabeth Holmes, he convinced a bunch of rich, older white people who didn't really understand this <laughs> thing that he did and that he mm-hmm. had the secret. So from the beginning, everyone thought Alameda, where Sam recruited a bunch of his friends, people from Jane Street, people from MIT, Everyone thought Alameda was the sophisticated trading firm that knew what it was doing and that was making a lot of money and kind of helping subsidize Sam's empire. 
And then Sam was making investments through Alameda and through FTX in lots of companies, many, many companies, which is actually common. I mean, crypto, you know, especially now that everyone's trying to act like, oh, we had nothing to do with FTX. They all did business with FTX. It was by some measures the second largest exchange in the world. Um, Binance is by far the biggest. And Binance is as sketchy as they come, in my opinion, but we can talk about that if we need to. Um, it just really hasn't had its turn in the spotlight yet. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, Sam started spinning up this, this crypto empire just in the last few years. And he had the FTX offshore, which is like, hey, here, come and gamble. It's, you know, it's run by this, these smart, young, former finance guys who are going to make crypto into a big thing. You know, and then the main way he bought um, public opinion was just money. Uh, he, he splashed around a lot of money, lobbying, of course, and trying to get certain laws passed. But then, you know, all the celebrity endorsements, hanging out with celebrities, um, FTX Arena, where the Miami Heat play. Um, he, he had, you know, had arenas named after them. They were going to actually, I think, have the football stadium at Berkeley oh possibly named after them. <laughs> yeah. Um, the University of Berkeley. Yeah, Cal Berkeley. I mean, universities have gotten pretty into, of course, like mm -hmm. monetizing college sports. And then now actually gambling is a big thing here in the U.S. Um, sports gambling has been more legalized in the last few years than it was. So there's a lot of intersection between those two. Also, crypto and sports gambling. But yeah. Sam was like the nice, trubic face guy who is going to make this all okay. And he was also the kind of safe bet for institutional money. So you had things like the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. This is a teacher's pension fund from Canada, invested over $200 million in FTX. Jeez. You know, this is a teacher's pension fund, but it's also supposed to be mm -hmm. a sophisticated investor, you know, who knows what they're doing. Yeah. But Sam basically convinced, all, just like um, Elizabeth Holmes did, all these investors that, oh, you know, he, here was this nerdy guy who knew all this stuff and could revolutionize this industry and make you a, a, a shitload of money. And so they just wrote him huge checks. I mean, Sam certainly, I, I think one thing that's important to know is like Sam certainly stole money from his customers at FTX because the money that was put into FTX was just supposed to sit there. Like if you go on FTX and you buy crypto, it's just supposed to sit there so you can withdraw yeah. later if you want to sell them your crypto back. Mm. What, what the basic thing he was doing was he was, they were funneling money all over the place, especially to Alameda because it turned out, hey, these supposed geniuses actually aren't very good at trading. So Alameda, which is supposed to be cutting edge quants trading crypto on all these uh, really risky markets, they were doing a pretty bad job of it. I mean, they claim again, they claim they just made a couple bad choices, gotten over their heads, over leveraged, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they were reckless. They're hugely reckless and made a lot of mistakes. You can say they were dumb or whatever, however you want to attribute it. But that's basically what happened was, you know, he robbed one half of his company to, to help prop up the other. A lot of other stuff happened. There's a lot of missing money. Sam himself apparently took out a $1 billion loan. I don't know if lots of that money will ever be found. I mean, they bought tons mm -hmm. of property. They, but there are also signs that these guys were not very good criminals. I mean, they bought, they bought property and put it in his parents' name in the Caribbean. I mean, you know, anyone knows. They're like, you buy, you buy property, even in the U.S., even just for some people just put property in in the in the yeah. name of an LLC just, just set, to be set, safe like, in the US you know like it's not even, it's not even, like, even I know that for god's sake <laughs> yeah yeah and and FTX had more than 130 companies mm -hmm. at least related to it 130 companies filed for bankruptcy um 
It feels you know, like and- nah, he, it feels like he just didn't really watch a lot of and like I just remember there's an article where he was like he didn't really like do much in terms of his social life and like yeah. he didn't really have a lot of interest. So maybe he just didn't watch enough films. Yeah, on, maybe. Like, how <laughs> me, and, me, and my, me and my uh, dumbest friends be, are know, gonna we'll- move out to the desert and commit crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot about like if I had less of a conscience and, and frankly less anxiety, I could be a pretty mm-hmm. good criminal consultant now or something like because I've learned a lot <laughs> both from writing about crypto and from watching movies about like how to hide money and stuff. Um, coincidentally, Sam Bankman Fried's dad is an expert on tax oh. shelters and tax evasion. What? Oh, come no! It's ridiculous. No. But he could have well, oh, passed that much That's of a, it on if. Uh, if he was just like, oh, where yeah, am I, where am I going to put that. my, I mean, what, what name am I going to put my uh, money laundered profit, uh, property in? I know, I know. It's got to be my mum and dad because otherwise, what if I forget? Because I'll remember their names. So yeah, yeah. this makes this makes the yeah. most sense. <laughs> and, and in terms of Sam's also image, like, you know, th- th- this is why I'm trying to say like also, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about, like there's a lot of, a lot of blame to go around and a lot of bad guys like so sam was also propped up because look he was an he was you know he's a nice white jewish guy from a good family and i can <laughs> say this is a nice white jewish guy from a good family you know uh well to, upper middle class and his parents were both stanford law professors like he was supposed to be this perfect product of the meritocracy and like you know and you know, people will say like but his, his parents were stanford law professors how could this happen well like you know, people really educated people commit crimes too, and sometimes they're mm-hmm. better at them even. Um, um, and but you know, there was this whole illusion that this nice guy from a good family was sort of the way to bring the stuff out into the open, and the reason why to trust him. And obviously, that that's really wrong. But that's also why he got two billion dollars mm-hmm. worth of venture capital. And yeah. I think the venture capitalists are a huge part of this industry because they've all been very greedy and. You know, and there are different ways in which venture capital makes money off of crypto in some ways that I think are very unethical. But they're also just, you know, there are other ways, too, in which they just gave these entrepreneurs like Sam a lot of money and took equity in their companies. And very foolishly, they either didn't do their due diligence or they just were charmed or they were dumb, whatever number of reasons. But like, for example, there's a notorious story now about Sam playing video games during his pitch meeting mm-hmm. with Sequoia Capital, a major venture capitalist who gave him a lot of hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe. Um, that's ridiculous. I mean, but for them, it became some, it was like charming that, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, look, the nerd was actually playing video games, like when he was giving this cool presentation to us, like, and there's, there was a, apparently during the group chat on the VC side, one of them said, I think we're talking to the first trillionaire future trillionaire and like i love this guy and Mm. there was this really over the top fourteen thousand word article that sequoia commissioned about him about sam and then it was taken off the internet you can find on the internet archive or on twitter but like you know this is how silicon valley has thought of the prototypical entrepreneur for years you know basically for the last 20 years if not more it's like the zuckerberg type or elizabeth holmes type it's a nerdy white person who promises you they can make you a ton of money and like the social awkwardness or even sometimes rudeness mm-hmm. is like part of the package. It also um, speaks to what Phoebe was saying about like yeah. the idea of like the influencer. But he's like, he's sort of just like acting like an influencer. And in this case, being like a Twitch a twi- uh, yeah, a streamer. A streamer. Slash a bit, gamer. This is the thing. It all like, it all can, it all connects, yeah. like, particularly with what you were saying about getting a member of a group to market, to market crypto to the rest of the group. I mean, it's, it, 
it's very observable something that's sort of something that's going on it's uh very i think despicable because uh i pff, uh listeners will obviously be aware of my position on the influencer economy i think it is <laughs> it's a mystification of the advertising industry like what once yes. like once upon a, once upon a time uh a brand has an advert that they've paid an advertising agency to make and you know that they're trying to sell you something but the existence of this and I don't think parasitic is too strong, not prof- like professionally. I don't think it's too strong a term of a parasitic class of people that exist to mystify that somebody is trying to sell you something. And they yes. are often able to do this in a dishonest cloak of philanthropy, in a dishonest cloak of activism. It's infected every single part of, uh, of culture. It's infected politics. Like charities are now desperate to get some like a kind of like an ill-informed Instagrammer to like mouth off just so that they will say the name yeah. of the charity or the NGO. It is completely mystified uh, the relationship between um, between what actual activism is and what uh, and what posting is. And it and in this particular instance, it um, it sets itself up as being like you said, as being this this second way and whatever whatever one has to say about how states have both historically and in the contemporary time operated it's still not a good second option as far as i can tell to just say well then maybe we should just let tech companies funded by venture capital act like states with none of the checks and balances that that implies but when it comes to stuff like how how embedded it is with the influencer economy, I was really interested in what you said about about the idea of like being your own bank, but how that ties you in a very in a very emotional and psychological and anxious way to your bank in the way that it doesn't with like traditional banking infrastructure. And that's another thing which the influencer economy relies on. It relies on people being absolutely, absolutely addicted to, to fecking about on their phones. Like you're constantly checking your wallet You're checking your crypto wallet. What's it doing? Is it going up? Is it going down? Like what? Just like checking your notifications. Just like checking your notifications and influencers Whatever they say about, oh God, the, my life is so difficult, my work is so difficult, the intrusion, the intrusion, the intrusion. Um, but whatever they say, the reason that they get paid by brands or by companies to sell their products is because they can demonstrate that there are people who are willing to constantly check up on them and to comment and to interact. And it's and it's part of the same and it's part of the same system. And I think one of the reasons mm. that it doesn't cut through is because it it does seem like influencing. It does seem like getting you to buy something yes. as opposed to something which people recognize as being a way of handling of handling their money. Like again, whatever you say about tradition about Wall Street, about traditional banking infrastructure, like it's not like it's not good. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's set up in a way um that that is good for ordinary people because it certainly isn't. But People know what it is. People know what a bank is. But you got some you got some person trying to sell you a detox tea or this brand new way of investing. The only person you have to trust is this person that has been set up as your pretend friend in the computer. And this is how all of this stuff intersects. And you can mm. pretend they can pretend that it's got this kind of philanthropic like, oh, this is a way of like, like, again, I was really interested in this phrase you use, you know, banking for the bankless. But I would buy mm. the philanthropic argument more if a 
the uh, the actual physical mechanisms of how this stuff is produced wasn't so disastrous for the planet, which is obviously going to have a you know, fairly, fairly deleterious effect on particularly poor people in the global south and working class people in the global south, and and you know and in the global north as well. You know, no one's going to be immune to it. Like whatever. Sam Bankman Freed and his, we'll, we'll just be in Mars. We'll just be on Mars. We'll be fine. We'll be on our Mars colony or <laughs> we'll be out, out, in, out in the desert dressing as wood nymphs or whatever it is they said in their Tumblr posts. Um, <laughs> but I would buy the, philan- the philanthropy argument more if, okay, so we were talking a bit about um, how this kind of, how this sort of functions, uh, how this functions in the global South. But domestically, if we're talking about who the bankless are and who the people who are, uh, excluded from traditional banking infrastructure, that's uh, that's homeless people, that's asylum seekers in the main. And if there was mm-hmm. any interest in actually advancing a philanthropic argument for this stuff, then why not start the focus there? Yeah, uh, I think that's all very well said. And it's worth emphasizing the influencer aspect because, you know, actually, when we really get down to it, crypto is all marketing and all influencers and all hype because there's very little underlying you there's no underlying utility really because you can't really use it as a currency and and almost no underlying there's no fundamental value no fundamental economics under uh, sustaining all this stuff why would you really buy one token instead of the other um i mean certainly at the top of course there's a value difference for now um but you know everything in crypto is sustained via hype and through influencers mm-hmm. and marketing i mean that's why also uh, i mean the sec uh, here has started to do some enforcement and that's why you know kim kardashian uh settled with the sec for over a million dollars for a fine because uh the sec finally started realizing look people are getting taken for a ride by influencers and celebrities and we have to start doing something about this because there's there's very little disclosure people don't know what they're getting into and when you have a, a, an economy or, or a crypto ecosystem that's basically all based on drumming up uh, hype and consumer interests with nothing underneath it. Yeah, it's all going to be about deception and marketing. And, 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 you know, and that, that, of course, gets you, you know, hiring celebrities and things like that, but it also gets you to, to some darker places too, like, like botnets online and just sort of information operations, just fa- a lot of disinformation on social media. And I don't mean in like, oh, the Russians are trying to, to you know, support Trump yeah. kind of disinformation. I mean, like, you know, companies and, and sort of more obscure operations spreading lies because they're trying to pump up their asset and, mm-hmm. or entice people into it. And this is happening all the time. It's not just crypto spam. And there's also, you know, a lot of paid and undisclosed relationships in crypto where people are getting paid to boost a coin or to denigrate another one uh, on their podcasts or on their Twitter feeds because they're being paid, you know, because mm-hmm. they have these relationships. And you, so, you know, you want to talk about trustless. You can't really trust any, what anyone says in crypto because you don't know if they're, as they say, if they're pumping their bag or not. And, and the related question is that is also like uh, mystification, actually, what you said earlier is so good because I use that word a lot, actually, because they mystify mm-hmm. the technology. The technology is actually pretty crappy, which I don't need to get into, but like you talk to, Pretty much every computer scientist or technologist I've talked to who's not personally invested in crypto, who doesn't work for a crypto company, who doesn't own crypto, they tell you the tech is bad. Um, yeah. It's slow. It's hard to build upon. The, you know, the natural th- uh, throughput throughput for uh, Bitcoin is about seven transactions per second. The mm-hmm. Visa network is something like 40,000 per second. Um, you know, th- then they'll just say, well, it's getting better and stuff. But like pretty much all the advancements in crypto have been trying to make up for this inherent technological slowness and difficulty and capacity. Um, 
and we can get into that, but we don't really need to. But like the tech isn't that good, actually. So they mystify it and act like blockchain is going to change the world and it's the next Internet and stuff. Blockchain is just kind of a slow database. It might yeah. have some uses, but it so far it doesn't really have that many uses. Like people ask me like, well, what is blockchain actually good for? There's got to be something. And it's like some people think it might be good for logistics and keeping track of supply chains. Some people even doubt that. The most convincing thing I've heard is like maybe for some of the plumbing of the banking system, like uh, what's called settlements and settling mm -hmm. transactions, it could mm -hmm. be useful for that. But that's boring stuff. That's like stuff that the consumers never see. Yeah. Um, and that's not a, like a trillion yeah. dollar business. And it's not a, a business with a billion customers. And that's what these guys are trying are hoping for. So um, so in place of that, in place of actual utility or actual economic value being generated, because this is a zero sum game at best, when you when you take in the environmental effects and the social costs, I would say this is a negative sum game because people are putting in real money. They're either losing it. You know, 99 percent of people in most MLMs lose money, like statistically, the top one percent win. Um, so people are either losing money, there's social costs, you know, there's addiction, there are, fa there are costs for families, then there's the environmental costs, they're burning through equipment, they're burning through electricity. Uh, it's actually not that profitable anymore to mine Bitcoin because the price has gotten so low. You have uh, power outages in places like Texas or, or certainly other countries overseas uh, in China until they kicked out all the, the miners. So like there's very little to actually even from like a traditional economic standpoint to say that they're uh, mm. good stuff here, um, <laughs> which is why I sometimes encounter people kind of who are centrist or even on the right or just business people who are who don't like crypto because they're like, I'm used to seeing like actual revenue streams and like economic ac activity and like you can allocate capital to much better purposes. Imagine if the two if the two billion dollars that was given to Sam Bankman Fried was put into yeah. almost anything else. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, like in the U.S., we could really benefit from investing in like long term mm -hmm. infrastructure or even look at the tech industry, like we, we really need to expand semiconductor production. So it's not, so we don't have to go to war over Taiwan. And so it's not all, you know, just so there's more capacity and it's not all in, in Taiwan yeah. and China, like those, but that, that requires billions of dollars and multi-year commitments. If you're a venture capitalist, so let me, let me actually explain something I alluded to earlier. One way venture capitalists make money off of crypto is they'll, they'll put money into like Sam Bankman Freed into his company and they'll get equity. Another way is like a lot of these crypto companies have their own token. Uh, FTX had their own token yeah. called FTT, and that was part of this uh, whole calamity. But what they do is they get the to they might get equity, but they might also get the token. Uh, so say like I'll I I give you a million dollars, you give me a ton of your tokens. You might price it at like eight cents per token, and then a few months later you have what's called an ICO, initial coin offering, or you might just give or open the token up to public sale. And you start selling it for like $8. Uh, then suddenly I've uh, increased my investment by a huge amount. I, I, me, the VC, I can dump my tokens on retail, as it's called. I can sell it. Because also another smart thing you would do is if you're the company, you would limit the number of tokens that are available to the public. So mm -hmm. you prime the market by like, so this happened very famously with Solana. Solana was, was, was called one of Sam's coins because Sam was very invested in it. Um, Solana, what they did was they apportioned a huge amount of the tokens to insiders, over a third of them. A very, less than 2% were sold to the public. So what happens is you have this very hype token. It shot up in value. Some of these investors had what are called lockup periods, which you see with, with like, say, um, if you're an investor or you work for a company and you get um, stock options, sometimes there's something similar. You can't sell for a certain period of time. This happens in crypto too. 
sometimes there's no lockup period. So like what happens is if so Solana debuts at like eight bucks or whatever, shoots all the way up to 250, 250 bucks at one point, I think even higher. Yeah. Um, you have the potential to like 100x, 1000x your initial investment within months. And that's just an unbelievable thing for mm. for a VC because normally they're waiting years for what's an exit or a liquidity event, as they call it. They're waiting years for either the company to go public so mm. they can sell their shares that they got really cheap and do the same thing or for someone else, for, you know, for Amazon to buy the startup that they invested in and, they yeah. st- and then they make a lot on their investment. But that could take years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the way that VCs are kind of in on the scam. And, and one way in which VCs are not incent, all the incentives in this industry are bad. They're all pointing the wrong way. And they're all pointing towards like people not doing due diligence and trying to make their money back as quickly as possible and trying to pump the market through mystification, through hype, through influencers. Um, there's very little incentives to actually like build real companies or long term yeah. solutions for people. Um, so, you know, that's that's how you have like a, a new token hyped every few months, at least uh, until a, a year or so ago, and why this market's so unstable and so mm. fundamentally unsound. Yeah, I know that we're like we're sort of like we're kind of edging towards uh, being out of time. But one one of the things I sort of wanted to ask was, and at the beginning of the show, I did sort of say about our first and only sort of foray into talking about crypto was like in reaction to uh what seemed to be like a surge of like crypto accounts like flooding twitter and sort of like all sort of saying the same thing in terms of like uh trying to get people to like sign up to coins like icos and so on um and i sort of see remnants of that now but like not as much like i and again this is anecdotal and i'd be really interested in like uh knowing what your thoughts are as someone who like observes this space more often but like has in terms of like both the fallout of FTX, but I guess like even the precedent towards that, um, you know, just kind of like all the sort of, you know, that we, we've had like, you know, coins that like stable coins collapse, the whole Terra Luna thing. Um, like there have been like a bunch of sort of cases of like crypto projects that were like toted to be the saviors of cryptocurrency or proof at last, but like this is sort of a stable and like alternative way of like managing a financial system and by extension, like, uh, creating a political system around it. Um, how have like the kind of crypto optimists or people who are really, really invested in crypto projects that maybe aren't just invested in it for purely like financial reasons, how have they sort of been responding to the collapse of FTX? And I guess like Binance uh, taking over and like auto- almost like becoming a central bank, as you mentioned, but really changing this kind of fantasy of like what crypto was supposed to be. Right. That's a that's a good question, because, you know, people, uh, you know, I criticize crypto from a certain angle and I talk about, you know, the right wing and the highly ideological libertarians and stuff. And I think that is an important uh, underpinning of crypto and kind of what sustains it even, especially through these crypto winter periods, as they talk about, but which this isn't the first. But, you know, people do get into industry for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it was paying well for a while. Some people mm-hmm. really do, be- do believe in its mission of sort of economic empowerment. Some people do think this is a new thing or just interesting problems to solve. So some of the optimists aren't necessarily as ideologically motivated. Um, you see some people actually do. Qu- I've seen some people in the industry questioning, you know, some of the fundamentals or like maybe things have changed. Maybe we do need more regulation. Maybe we do need to question some of our basic assumptions. Uh, then there's a lot of people who say things like, oh, we're still early, which is a, a sort of a joking meme, even in crypto. Like I joke about like, <laughs> we're still so damn early. You have no idea how early we are. But um, <coughs> excuse me. 
Just like in capitalism, the boom and bust cycle is seen as part of crypto. <laughs> it just happens a lot faster. And actually, that's one of my critiques, you know, because like a boom and bust cycle that happens every 18 to 24 months <laughs> is bad. That is bad for people. Um, you know, like so a, a recent example, I tweet about this, but like I was I was in Portugal and Lisbon at a conference um, and um, I was I, I participated, but for this part of the conference, I was just uh, in the audience and my co-writer Ben was on stage with Molly White, who's a crypt mm -hmm. great crypto skeptic, and Charles Hoskinson, who's the founder of Cardano. Cardano. It's, a, it's a top 10 crypto coin, but Cardano doesn't really do anything. Uh, <laughs> I mean, don't tell them that, but it's, it's a coin, but like no one really uses it. Um, but anyway, so on, on stage at this event in, in Lisbon, you know, we had... Um, Ben and Molly were talking about, hey, people have lost a lot of money. Like the people who you told this was the future of finance have now lost a lot of money. And the attitude throughout crypto is pretty much is a lot of like, well, you know, this is just another rut or another trough or another winter. Like the bull run will be back in a year or two. But, you know, that pe people, a lot yeah. of people can't afford that. Um, so on stage at this conference, what the, the great example was like Charles Hoskinson said, you know, it was, it was when the subject came up of people losing money, Charles Hoskins, Hoskinson said, hey, I lost $2 billion. And he, you know, he was trying to be kind of funny. And well, one, that $2 billion was never real. It was on paper. And it was because your token went down. But sure, fine, you lost $2 billion. <laughs> You're very rich. You have no problem. You know, and he said, we're going to break some plates along oh. the way. Something <laughs> like that. And Molly, Molly White had an excellent comeback where she said, mm. those plates are people. Um, mm. You know, and I think that's just so important. And really... I think that is there's this fundamental difference in perspective between the everyday retail investors, as they're called, just people who got in because they either saw an opportunity, they need to make more money, maybe they were desperate. The people who just bought in for 500, 5,000, whatever number of amount of money, and the people who work in the industry. The people who work in the industry think, okay, there's going to be a boom and bust cycle. There's going to be a lot of volatility. We'll eventually work that out over time, and then it'll be great. We'll challenge TradFi. It'll be smooth sailing. Um, but in the meantime, that's a lot of people whose lives you're messing with, who you're inviting into a disruptive, in the bad way, not in the good tech disruption, mm. uh, economic system, and people are suffering and there are bad consequences. People lose money. Like, yeah, you could say, like, don't invest more than you're prepared to lose, which is the point for any investment or any gambling. But of course, people are convinced because you did all this marketing, like, there's this way, like crypto is such an individualist culture. There's something called DYOR, do your own research, uh, mm. which I say you can't DYOR if the whole information yeah. environment is bad, which if there's tons of misinformation, if people are lying, if companies are lying, uh, if you don't know who you're sending your money to, you can't possibly do, no, who could DYOR no. on FTX? No, no one really knew. You could be suspicious, but even people in crypto thought that Sam and Alameda were these brilliant traders and they thought actually he was stealing all their money by hunting their <laughs> position and things like that. Um, so you can't DYOR and it can't be. And yeah, like you could say only risk what you're prepared to lose. But obviously people were, you know, you had also people like Michael Saylor, uh, I think a total clown, but he's a major Bitcoin influencer. His company has basically become a holding vehicle for Bitcoin. And he told people to mortgage their houses. Oh, my God. To buy Bitcoin. Oh he my. was totally serious. People praise this guy. They invite him to conferences. They put him on stage. He's on TV all the time. And he his investment in Bitcoin's way down. And if you bought if you mortgaged your house and bought Bitcoin or even did any even if you just bought Bitcoin yeah. when he told you to, 
you are down like 60%. And mm. again, people say, well, just hold on or hodl, you know, like yeah. that doesn't work for most people. And people who are told like, this is how you make a bunch of money real quick to, to pay off your bills or whatever. Uh, you know, a lot of people struggling during COVID and put in their, their stimulus check, which was maybe insufficient to cover their bills, but enough to gamble with. You know, this is how you get serious consequences. And this is also the reason, this is what people in crypto, I think, don't realize. The, the retail people, which are the everyday people, mm. are leaving. They're leaving the casino. The numbers are going down. And mm. if crypto wants to come back in two years, they're going to have to either come up with something new or tell a new story or a new kind of sales pitch because the, those people are gone. The NFT market has, has collapsed by over 97%. Like no one, people don't want this stuff or they lost their money or they know it's a scam and they yeah. can't trust these people. So it's like this, this idea that you're going to break plates, but those plates are people. I yeah. just think is so important. Mm. Uh, one more quick anecdote about that, you know, and sometimes you don't blame the people who work in crypto, but like they should be more self-aware actually. Like, so you have people working these crypto companies, they're used to making money hand over fist and then something bad happens and they're like, oh, well, I still got my house or whatever. Mm. Um, so for example, when, um, during when um, there was this company called Axie Infinity. Axie Infinity mm -hmm. it makes a play-to-earn game. They're based out of Vietnam, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think they had investment from Alameda. They certainly have investment from Binance. They make a play-to-earn game. Play-to-earn games are, are, are more obvious pyramid schemes than other games. But you basically, you play a video game, you earn crypto in return. You usually have to buy in by buying an NFT, which could be expensive. And so these have become very popular in the global south. The people in the Philippines play um, Axie Infinity in order to make a living. Some people do. Some people actually in, in the Philippines play for rich Americans. And the American, like, say, like, I'm some guy on Wall Street and I get into this game. I can find some person on, like, um, on um, a gig market like uh, Mechanical Turk or Fiverr or wherever and pay them to play my account all day. <laughs> and build up my account and make me some money and I give them a cut or whatever. Or maybe I have five accounts. And then I, you know, there are ways in which like this stuff has been sort of outsourced. And it, it's just like you had World of Warcraft gold farming like 10 or 15 years ago. Some people in crypto actually did that. Now the, the current version is pay to play to earn uh, games. So, so just start by knowing that, that that's a pyramid mm -hmm. scheme and it's exploitative and it targets mm -hmm. people in the global south. Um, earlier this year, I believe it was eight, March or April, Axie Infinity was hacked. I mean, a lot of these hacks, you have to wonder if they're insiders, but um, Axie Infinity was quote unquote hacked for about $600 million worth of crypto at the time. That was a lot of money. Uh, the companies, they had to close withdrawals, meaning no one could get their money out. The price, they had their own token, like every crypto company does. The price of their own token plummeted. So what you, ha so what you have is on one side, you have all these people in the global south who suddenly can't get their money out and the, the worth of their money is going way down while they can't get it out for like a month. Um, the company says, oh, boo-hoo, we've been hacked. But they were made whole by Binance and other investors within about a week. And they still kept withdrawals closed. So like, um, and I was talking to someone about this who works in crypto. It was basically a, a background conversation. So I can't say who, but he was saying like, oh, these things are going to happen. You know, like, because he sees yeah. it from the company perspective mm. that, you know, they get hacked. A lot of money might disappear out the back door or goes to North Korea or whatever. But, you know, they're made whole or the bumps in the road, however you want to phrase mm -hmm. it, they move on and the company survives, which has happened in a lot of these cases. They'll lose unbelievable amounts of money to hacks or malfeasance and then somehow they seem to move on. Mm -hmm. um, but again, like the people playing the game or relying on that money, they don't move on. They're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. They, they have real costs. And like, 
I just think people in crypto don't quite get that yet or aren't paying enough attention. And like, they think that victims either have it coming to, to them or just weren't responsible or just have to yeah. take their lumps. Yeah. And that is not how you build a sustainable industry. And that's also what gets you sued. <laughs> yeah. And, right, yeah. and um, rightly so. And also, I mean, if they, if they weren't uh, interested in uh, deliberately marketing to people and deliberately encouraging them to take these to take these risks. Then why in then why make such a an energetic investment in building a whole marketing apparatus? Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's actually not it's not an adequate explanation at all to say what well, you shouldn't have fallen for our marketing <laughs> because if the yeah. point if the point of the marketing is not to get people to fall for it, then what's the What's the point of the mar- what's yeah. the point of the marketing? Like, it's like a, it's oh, you sort should of, have listened to our sales pitch. Yeah, like, um, it's, a, that's a, it's a completely circular and insane argument. I'm very aware that we're running to time, and I also I really wanted to talk about OFAC as well. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We can, and more like more just I'm so interested on um, Sam Bankman Fried's own comments about uh, about OFAC and about regulators, and like I said, that there's just particularly the OFAC ones. They're just so just so ideologically on the like real horseshoe theory stuff um yeah yeah i mean what me and sbr think about OFAC. yeah i think the people in crypto who you find aren't very ideological who maybe aren't like overtly right-wing libertarians like say like jesse powell the ceo of kraken like he recently resigned um you know he's known as very ideological um and you can see he's been there have been some good new york times articles on him um you know he basically uh, whatever there's some uh, he's like anti-woke and all this crap and um but he, you know he's one of these people who thinks anyone should be able to transact with anyone mm. like even if you're not a fan of uh sanctions you probably don't want to break the law when you're running a company mm-hmm. and one thing that crack in his exchange which is a mostly u.s-based exchange that they have lots of overseas presence um they kept a, a list of customers in sanctioned countries which is just a bad idea. So like they had lists of yeah. here's our Excel <laughs> list of customers in Cuba, in Syria, in Iran. And right, you know, recently there was a, a story about Binance doing a lot of business in Iran or with an Iranian exchange, really. Mm. Um, so, you know, there and he's ideologically motivated, not because he thinks like, I mean, he thinks sanctions are bad, not because like they are, they like, not because he's a, really against the American empire, but because they inhibit like economic freedom. Uh, which, you know, there, there's an argument to be made there of a certain kind of economic freedom. But it, it's also, you know, worth knowing that these people have a very narrow view of what economic freedom is. Yeah. You know, I always I say sometimes, like, you know, what would help my economic freedom is if I had public health care and maybe like state subsidized child care. That would yeah. help my economic freedom a yeah, lot. Maybe, maybe. I mean, just, you know, just chucking ideas <laughs> out there, just spitballing. Yeah, I don't need like permission to send as much money as I want to anyone in the world. I mean, I get the appeal. But, you know, uh, I don't have money to send, really. But, yeah. um, but Jacob, have so, you considered there might be free childcare on the moon colony? Is that not something that you've considered? Right, that's right. If only I had bought in early, you <laughs> know, I, I should have known If only you in early, you get a space on the spaceship. And this is another This is, this is another thing, like, like I said, this is going to be my last question, I promise. Um, but another thing that um, I'm interested in is what you said about uh, their kind of almost like kind of godlike conception of time where it doesn't matter that like at the moment there's a crash because there'll be another because there'll be another boom and then there'll be another bust and really in the great cycle of history isn't that what we see waves and drops and waves and drops and i'm so interested in how that kind of expressed itself in the uh in the kind of so in the sort of social and cultural system espoused by bankman fried and his and his friends like this 
it's kind of oddly yeah. kind of cultic so and it's very but and it's very based on both effective altruism and and like long and long termism so yes. so it's very mm. it, it's it's the it's the uh it's the finance version of well, we don't need to uh, we don't need to uncouple from the fossil fuel industry because moon colony, um, yeah. and yeah. and that's a very similar attitude, very similar kind of cavalier and uh, less fair attitude to uh, to the real lives that they are that they are that they are ruining uh, that they're yeah. ruining with their irresponsible actions. And again, this is something that we can just so tie into the tie into not just the influencer economy. But, um, but all of all of kind of online that's being kind of bought up as kind of a sort of digital infrastructure mouthpiece, um, and it re- and it relies on the utter depersonalization of the people at the other people at the other end. Yeah. It's all part. It's all part of the same part of the same system. And because uh, we we really want to do a, a, a separate episode about. Um, like what these people like actually believe, and like what was like what's going on in their in you know in their in their polycule. Um, if you're available, <laughs> if you're available, and you would like to come back and talk oh, to us about their yeah. polycule, like then that, a polycule then of that ideas. Be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, dude, I live in Brooklyn, so that's I, the whole pad here. That idea polycule. I wish to make that <laughs> abundantly clear. <laughs> um, then yeah, but I do think we are going to have to wrap up because we've been going for an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got to get to the pub. I've got to secure a seat. I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go safe seats, and it's an important game. I don't know what to tell you. That's right. Well, look, I was, I was just going to say, this isn't a quote, but it's more just like obviously there is like a lot to still uncover about crypto. And what I was going to say was it'd be great that uh, it would be it would be great to have you back on, uh, Jacob. And also, uh, if uh, when your book comes out, if you and Ben wanted to come on and like we could talk about this in a much more kind of like. Yeah, I guess like in like historical terms, but also really looking at that kind of the ideological underpinnings of how. Uh, like this, yeah, so I think yeah. that'd be like really good. Um, but yeah, we have we have run out of time, unfortunately. So what I do want to say is, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for like spending time talking through like a fraction of what was actually <laughs> what's been going on. I do want to emphasize that like so much of the notes we just didn't get to. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry will... about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, like the thing is, you actually covered quite a lot. But I think just like the scale of like everything that's happened uh, has meant that like this is certainly like a subject that like we will have to like get back to uh, pretty soon. And like I imagine, as you mentioned, like once uh, once Binance, like uh, once certain things get revealed about Binance, like I'm sure we will have to revisit it once again. Yeah, um, yeah. Sam you, is the villain yeah. of the moment, but things things will change you now, and they're they're going to be more bankruptcies. I'm sorry, just even probably in the next couple of weeks, they're going to be more yeah. bankruptcies. There's going to be like a lot more villains. Um, yeah, and I think- <laughs> if people want to acknowledge that, but if they want to just act like not, none of this stuff ever happened, and there's one villain, and then move on or something like that, and rebuild, then they will. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but what, what I was going to say was that uh, you keep like track of like all the villains and all the sort of characters, yeah. uh, uh, almost, like, single-handedly, yeah. almost like single-handedly. Uh, and if people <laughs> wanted, and if people wanted to have that experience uh, online, how could uh, how could they like follow you or like how can they keep up with your work? Uh, so you can follow me at, at Silverman Jacob on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm not I'm bar- I'm not really on Facebook. I'm not I'm barely on Instagram. But yeah, Silverman Jacob on Twitter. Um, you know, feel, I have my contact info on there. I'm, all, I'm, you know, always glad to hear from folks. Uh, Jacob Silverman at Gmail. I'm on most most of the platforms, but I'm very mm-hmm. reachable. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff is ridiculous. Some of it's horrid, but it's also frankly fun to cover and interesting. And mm-hmm. um, 
So, you know, and there are, and there are a lot of great characters. The effects are bad, the causes are bad, but sometimes <laughs> things in it are kind of funny. So who's to well, say whether it's good or not? <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I quote, there's a quote from Darren Ravel, who's a, a very sort of trashy sports reporter here in the US, uh, football guy. And when Trump was elected, he said something like, he tweeted this, he's like, this is really bad for the country, but this is great content. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very much like the philosophy of this show. Uh, yeah, that's like pretty much the stuff that we cover. That's how you sometimes <laughs> feel. And that's kind of how you avoid getting black pilled, I think, writing about crypto. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we'll kind of link back. I also want to link a couple of the pieces uh, that I used to uh, prepare this show uh, from your pieces in the New Republic, which I think like right. even though they were like published a few years ago, they provide like a really good sort of precedent to like understand everything that's sort of happening right now. Um, so yeah, I would definitely encourage you to read those. Um, I kind of put my, yeah, you can follow me, you know where to follow. Uh, Phoebe, do you want to plug anything before we, uh, before we close out? Yeah. If you don't already listen to uh, me and Milo Edwards' Seinfeld podcast, uh, you can do that. It's masters of our domain and you can find it on Twitter at masters of pod, um, where we post the episodes, etc. The show is produced by Devin. You can follow them at Devin underscore on Earth. You can also listen to Kill James Bond, which is a very, very good podcast. You should go check it out. And then finally, if you like this episode and you want to hear like more stuff from us, um, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon, five bucks a month. that helps us run the show and do the things that we do. Patreon.com forward slash 10K post podcast. Um, so until next time, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.